Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $191 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. The U.S. economy has rapidly morphed from a peak-everything environment into what is viewed as one of the more severe monetary tightening cycles in recent history. Just last week, the Federal Reserve delivered its first 50 basis point rate hike in 22 years, and inflation hawks see a lot more to come. Equities have taken it on the chin with the threat of reduced liquidity and spiking bond yields leading to the worst start to the year for stocks since 1939. I don't believe this is what we had in mind with normalization from the COVID-19 pandemic, but a little perspective is in order, as we will share with you in today's discussion. On a brighter note, we are approaching normalcy for the ClearBridge podcast as we welcome Steve Rigo, portfolio analyst for the ClearBridge Appreciation Strategy and a longtime follower of the financial sector, into our Manhattan podcast studio for the first in-person show we have produced since February 2020. Steve, I'm glad you could join us and be a part of this historic moment. All joking aside, we are confronting a number of economic and market uncertainties today, and Steve will help me walk through these risks and the potential opportunities they present in today's podcast, Can the Fed Tame Inflation and Engineer a Soft Landing? That is a, an important question. Can the Fed tame inflation and engineer a soft landing? Steve, you're part of this historic podcast, and I think this is the question on everybody's minds. Welcome to the non-virtual booth. I've been waiting two years to say that. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So obviously, there's a lot of things going on in the market right now. If you look at the S&P 500, we've had five straight negative weeks, about to be the sixth straight negative week, unless we can get a dramatic turnaround. And it's the first time that we've seen this since June 2011, so close to 11 years. So we've been pretty spoiled as investors. If you go back to 1928 through 2011, it happened 61 times. So it usually happens every 1.3 years. It's almost been 11 years. So we've seen some real volatility. And really, one of the things that are driving this is the pivot from the Fed and this focus on inflation. I bet a lot of people a year ago wouldn't be saying that we'd be seeing a 8.3% inflation print that we got from CPI here recently. So Steve, I want to kick it off and talk about that question. Inflation. How did we get to 8-plus percent inflation over the course of this recovery? Yeah, so before we get to the 8-plus percent inflation rate, I'd just like to talk about what I think changed from a stable price environment to one of unstable prices. And I think that falls squarely on the fiscal policy. The stimulus that was provided post the pandemic was one that put money directly in people's checking accounts, and that unleashed a consumer spend that we were not prepared for. We had a labor force that was impaired, they were sick or unwilling to come to work, while the savings rate ballooned to over 30% of disposable incomes. That created an environment of, of supply shortages and, and supply chain disruptions. It was logistics of all kinds, from shipping to rail, to us buying electronics and automobiles in an environment where there were not enough employees to produce what was unleashed by this massive amount of consumer spending. I think that is a big difference from the amount of st the stimulus that was being delivered post the global financial crisis, which largely created an environment of reserves in banks that ultimately ended up being saved more than it was spent, as opposed to the fiscal stimulus that equated to 25% of U.S. GDP that caused the consumer to be flush with cash. Yeah, in, in, in 2010, we had the Tea Party, uh, we had austerity. I mean, you had this stimulus that was coming from the Fed, but it was being negated uh, by austerity, not in, only in the U.S., but in Europe. But this time, you had both 
stimulus avenues growing in the same direction. Exactly, exactly. You went from a very liquid environment to one that was very liquid with a flush consumer. And then you had the problems of deglobalization and we were building domestic supply chains at a time when they weren't fully built out and there was a massive amount of spend that was pent up and, and ready to go. And we just weren't prepared to deal with that. So, you know, and fast forward to today, right? The pandemic has turned endemic. And in my opinion, I'm, we may have another wave or two. That story needs to still play out, but it appears that we're going to have a more durable reopening. People are going to stop buying things and start buying experiences or services, going back to some level of normalcy. So this obviously should bring down inflation theoretically, right? Well, I guess. I mean, the risk to us would be that this goods-based inflation then translates into service-based inflation with wages being the predominant risk in all of this, right? We've got a very tight employment market. People want to get paid more for the goods they're producing, certainly we've seen, but also for the services they're going to render. And so to us, the question then becomes, is the tight labor environment going to be one that continues a wage price spiral versus one where the Fed can, can kind of control that and um, you know, flatten out wage inflation? You bring up an interesting question, right? This broadening out of inflation services is, is certainly seeing that at the moment. You're seeing rent, shelter inflation broaden out, and I don't think that's going to be going down anytime soon. Uh, if you look at the most recent CPI print, airfares have spiked 18% on a month-over-month basis, lodging, car rentals, all the reopening themes, right? So if we're going to continue to have this durable reopening, it's not going to go anywhere anytime soon, at least inflation. It's going to stay high, probably peaking at the moment, but we're not going to get back to 2% inflation anytime soon. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, one thing we worry about is demand destruction created by high inflation rates. And and so how did we get to 8.3%, right? Some of it was what I think was the strong consumer, which we've discussed. But then you also had the war in Ukraine that added kind of an energy crisis and uh, an agricultural crisis to, to the globe, right? And so, you know, we're not seeing demand destruction right now, which is sustaining the economy. But what we'd like to see is a little bit of a flattening of inflation, even if it's above the target 2%, which I think is totally fine, with not a massive amount of demand destruction, hence the soft landing. However, the longer that this persists where the Fed is behind the curve and inflation is running hot, I think the more difficult that becomes to engineer that soft landing. Well, if you think about inflation, there's really kind of three components to an inflation model. You have the supply component, which we've, we've talked about, and that's probably the easiest to model. Whenever you see a supply shock, prices spike, you see demand destruction, supply comes back online, and then usually those prices will end up being deflationary looking out over the next couple of years. And that's our core view, that you're going to have goods deflation 2023 and 2024 as demand switches and supply comes online. You have the demand component, which you've mentioned, with stronger wages a strong consumer, that's something that really could keep inflation elevated, at least from what we've seen over the last couple of decades. And then the last component's expectations. And this is one that I think is really important. The Fed may be behind the curve. I think we can all agree on that. Transitory wasn't all that transitory after all. And now they've, I think their word has moved from transitory to expeditiously. They want to get to the neutral rate as fast as humanly possible. But I think what's important is that expectations still remain firmly anchored. A couple of ways of measuring this, the five-year, five-year inflation break-even, that is at 2.35%, I mean, right in the range that we've seen over the last decade. If you look at the University of Michigan's consumer expectations for inflation five to 10 years out, it's at 3%. Going back to 1998 through 2014, it was averaging 2.9%. So I would make the argument that we're just reversing the damage to inflation expectations that was seen at the end of the last cycle when everybody thought that you're going to have secular stagnation forever, growth is never coming back, and, and we're just kind of reversing and getting back to a, a place of normalcy. I mean, what do, you, what do you think about that? 
while being vigilant on that topic, and I tend to agree with you, I, I do worry that as the labor market is the, the key element of this, right? If someone has a job and they think they can switch a job for a higher price, say you're working at Amazon for $15 an hour, but you might be able to work for UPS at $18 an hour, that's where I think you can have that momentum and the change of expectations work against you. So right now the expectations are relatively anchored, but the momentum is against us. And so I do think that that's why labor is key. And if the Fed can create a little bit of additional labor slack without impacting aggregate demand too much, then you're right. I think that we'll be all right and that expectations will remain well anchored. Um, but I do think that that story is yet to be told. And there's real risk that the tightness in the labor market can create this kind of spiraling impact that will be hard to adjust. And so the Fed should have some urgency. I think they should have some more urgency than they currently do. But there is an, a hope or an expectation that inflation expectations will remain well anchored. Well, Bullard is now saying that 75 basis points of a rate hike next uh, FOMC meeting is, is not necessarily the baseline. And he's been kind of leading the hawks forward. So that's a good sign that we may not get a surprise on that front. But, you know, you have some anecdotal evidence that maybe there is some cooling. I mean, Amazon recently mentioned that their land grab for labor is over. They're oversupplied with labor after hiring about 600,000 people over the last couple of years. Facebook has uh, gotten to where they need to be from a, a labor perspective. So maybe there's a, a little bit more looseness out there, but there's no way, other way to look at it that this is a tight labor market from a historic perspective. I, I think that's an extremely important point, especially the Amazon one. When when you are the market and you are, you're the incremental hirer, you're the incremental capex on warehousing space, and that was occurring during a very difficult environment to get supplies, to get labor. The second derivative on that from Amazon and Facebook that are major hirers for our economy, I think is an important signpost that could speak towards the flattening of labor inflation and the tightness in the labor market. Something that gives me optimism that perhaps a soft landing can be engineered and that although 8.3% yesterday of CPI suggests that we're not over the hump, that maybe we're reaching that topping point and, and looking to moderate on a go-forward basis. Yeah, and, and obviously the weakness in tech, right? You have uh, less startup funding. A lot of these companies are going to be focusing on cash flow, especially the the businesses that aren't necessarily making money at the moment. So that should translate to lower hiring. But either way you look at it, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a tight labor market. And Powell has mentioned that he, they see unemployment rate going to 3.5% by the end of the year. We're at 3.6%. I think that's going to be a tough uh, line to walk and, and to be able to accomplish at this point. I mean, no, no doubt financial conditions are tightening and – and for the right reasons, right? We need them to tighten. And and again, you bring up another point, biotech funding, venture capital funding. These were also big hiring pools. And and to the extent that you're focused on cash flow and rationalizing business models and that we're going to value uh, businesses based upon cash flow as opposed to something like price to sales or something that's extremely future-based, I think those are all very necessary components for, for taming inflation expectations and setting the course right for the next 10, 20 years. Well, it's going to be, you know, I think the labor market indicators are going to be the thing to watch over the next six months to see if we can get a pivot back over to being a little bit less hawkish. Average hourly earnings just came out on a three-month annualized basis. It dropped to 3.8%. That's a lot lower than the 5.5% on a year-over-year basis. So there is some silver lining. But again, you can look at other measures that say that we're close to all-time highs with wage growth, right? So it's uh, it's a little bit of a mixed bag right now. I, I did find the average hourly earnings very encouraging in terms of this concern of ours as it relates to labor inflation. And so we will definitely be watching average hourly earnings in every monthly employment report <laughs> for the very near future. Yeah. As will Pal and the FOMC <laughs> and, and everybody else in the industry, right? Because they're obviously going to dictate the fate of this cycle. Now, my core view is inflation is going to come down. It's probably going to be higher than what we've experienced over the last couple of decades, maybe settling in at the end of next year, maybe 3%. 
certainly higher than what we've been accustomed to. But I, I think we need to talk about where do you position in a higher inflationary environment, higher interest rate environment? I mean, realistically, as investors, we really haven't had to deal with this for arguably 40 years. How do you position for this? Where are good places to, to hide out in the equity market? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, higher inflation is going to create a refocus on cash flow and sustainable cash flow and companies that can, that have strong competitive positions and are able to compound that cash flow over time. And I think that's very important is that you're focused on on the quality of a company's balance sheet, the quality of a company's competitive position, and their ability to produce returns in the form of cash flow and dividends. I do agree that hopefully we're not at 8.3% inflation forever, but I do think, you know, at 3 4%, you're still going to be focused on current income, focused on quality balance sheets, focused on companies that, you know, are perhaps larger cap in nature and have less of a risk of any type of credit event. And so that's big picture where, where we'd position. But the second derivative of inflation is also important. So technology has been hammered recently, and rightly so. You know, it's not a great place to be, especially if you have long-dated, unprofitable companies. And so, but to the extent that inflation does return back to that 3% level in 2023, we do think that some of these companies that have largely locked in annuity stream-type revenues that have current free cash flow that are trading, some of these large software companies are trading 5 6% free cash flow yields, that there could be a return to that area. I don't think now currently when the throes of higher inflation, that may be the case, but to the extent that that outlook is correct, we do think that there are some high quality tech companies that generate free cash flow today that would be quite attractive. And dividend growers traditionally do well during a tightening cycle. If you go back to the last four tightening cycles in 1994, dividend growers have produced 7.8% on an annualized basis versus a 5.3% return for the S&P 500. And as you mentioned, right, free cash flow. If you have free cash flow, you're naturally going to increase your dividends. Yeah, we, w- we would argue that the dividend pairs were largely underappreciated over the past three years. And so we welcome a return. Again, as we've been talking about cash flow, clearly a theme in this conversation, we welcome the, the dividend payers are back in vogue, that people are focused Finally, on- Finally, it's been a long time. It's, it's been a long time, that people are focused on the here and now, right? On getting cash and capital back with their investments, or just understanding how that cash and capital is being allocated to the benefit of shareholders. Right, right. So talk to, talk to me a little bit about financials, right? Yeah, higher rates um, should be theoretically good for financials. Financials have not really been doing that well on a relative basis, really since the end of February. And you would think- 10-year treasury screening up 150 basis points over that time frame. This would be, you know, wheelhouse for financials to, to outperform. So what's going on in that particular sector? Yeah, so I think credit trumps everything in the financial sector. And, and you know, anytime that there's a concern about a recession and credit is part of the narrative, it does tend to override what is currently extremely favorable backdrop with a steeper yield curve and higher absolute interest rates for for bank revenues. And, and so I guess that's really going to be the pivot point for financials. I am definitely optimistic on banks on a longer term basis, given the environment that we're in. There's less regulatory scrutiny, there's better capital positions, there's more conservative credit underwriting, and then there's a higher interest rate environment. And so to the extent that we're able to engineer that soft landing, I think banks are very attractively priced after this sell-off, but it's very hard to, in the near term, to be a bank investor when the going narrative is a recession in a credit cycle. You're starting to see some normalization of credit on the lower end. So what you need to see is that second derivative start to flatten out and people be more comfortable about the long-term economic outlook. And then I think banks become a a very attractive place to invest. Yeah. Unfortunately, if you look at the major banks, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, 
City, the credit default swaps have been breaking out a little bit here, higher, uh, which signals that there could be a recession on the horizon. There's And there's also been a lot of counterparty concerns, right? So you're seeing a lot of blowups, whether it's certain hedge funds that are, that are performing poorly. And so the companies that have larger, more opaque trading businesses in an environment like this, people tend to take a pause on them. So to the extent that we can find conservatively operated banks with strong net interest income and good fee-based earnings that aren't necessarily capital markets intensive, we would prefer those over some of the ones that kind of have counterparty risk in an environment where people may be a little over-levered on the wrong side of, um, of markets unwinding. Well, and you look, look at the 10-year treasury, the move that we've had, you look at the strength of the dollar. I mean, usually when you see moves in these two you know, macro assets, something breaks in the global financial economy, right? And uh, we don't know what that's going to be at this point. So that's probably why there's some trepidation there. Yeah, there's a lot of run on on safe havens right now, right? One would think that the 10-year treasury would be well above 3%, let alone retreating back into the two eights right now. And so those would be some of the signposts that we look at in terms of understanding, you know, expectations of a credit and economic cycle in, in terms of adding incremental dollars to our bank investments. Now, I want to come back to this idea about the Fed, right? The Fed usually tightens till something breaks. Now, the key question for all of us as investors is whether that's going to be growth or inflation. If you look at the Fed tightening cycle since 1960, there's been 12 of them. Three were soft landings in 1965, 1984, and 1994. Nine were recessions. So just looking at that scorecard, it would appear that the Fed has a very challenging task at hand, especially where inflation is at the moment. So can Powell and company avoid a recession? I mean, it, it, is it possible to have a soft landing here? I mean, that's that's the all-important question, right? And I, I guess the answer is it's completely unknowable. But what I'd like to see is an opportunity for them to get rates above neutral and to be able to pause, have the inflation data suggest maybe it's still running a little bit hot, but the second derivative's in their favor. If they can get time on their side without having to be overly restrictive in their policy, yeah, I think there's a chance. I, I, the problem is, is the longer this persists, right, to the point of changing inflation expectations, the longer you're running six, seven, eight percent CPIs, the more that that inflation expectation is going to be ingrained in consumers' expectations, and the harder it's going to be to engineer that soft landing. So, in a perfect scenario, by July and August, we'll be at a neutral rate or higher, and that'll buy them time to see how the economy evolves. If CPI doesn't, or if inflation doesn't start to moderate, and we have neutral or restrictive rates, that's where you kind of run into a more difficult environment for the Fed. And they're going to have to make some very difficult choices. Well, Pal had mentioned that monetary policy works through tighter financial conditions. That means lower equities, higher credit spreads, higher interest rates. And if you look at the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index, which has its flaws, as all of them do, it's up from 97 to 99.25. We're not even at neutral yet. So believe it or not, with this huge move, which is bigger than the move that you saw in 1994, 2015, slowdown, 2018 sell-off, it's been a big move. We're still technically not back to neutral with that particular measure. Now, the one caveat is, is it doesn't directly measure mortgages. Mortgages have blown out a lot more than the 10-year treasury, so there's a lot of tightening going on in, in that particular uh, aspect of the economy. Uh, for example, if, with the year-to-date move in mortgage rates, the median monthly mortgage payment is up 39% year-to-date. That's massive. If that's not going to bring down house price appreciation to more normalized levels, I'm not sure what will. So you bring up very important points. The second derivative is obviously key, but importantly on the housing market, many of us have refied out and fixed out our mortgages. So that that higher rate is being borne by the new home purchaser, right? And and so that's just something that they're going to have to contend with, but hopefully most of us have, have fixed that out and that can be a, a stabilizing force for the housing market. But 
And in, in the grand scheme of things, a 5.5% mortgage rate is still quite attractive level of financing for the American consumers. So again, it's all about the second derivative, right? If we start to see some stability in this, such that people accept what the new paradigm is and they don't think it's running away from them, then yeah, I think economic activity can chug along while inflation normalizes and financial conditions remain moderately tight, but still conducive of a growing economy. It's that second derivative that we're, we were going to watch vigorously to make sure that it's not running away from people. And then that creates the demand destruction that we would worry about. And, you know, I, I'd make the argument that this is an economy that's much less interest rate sensitive than what we've seen over the last couple of cycles. Look at consumer debt to GDP. And this is the first time the Fed is embarking on a new tightening cycle where that level or that debt level is down. It's when it was 100% of GDP back in 2008, 76% today, right? So consumer balance sheets are in a really good manner at this point. Corporations have termed out their debt. So I would make the argument if we get to neutral, and you know that's by the Fed's estimates, 2.5% very quickly. Sure, it's going to cool down the pace of economic growth. It should cool inflation, but I don't think that it's going to cause a recession. I think that probably helps them on the inflation front, but brings us down to the trend growth. I mean, would you tend to agree? I mean, you're pointing out all the right things, and and you know, no one likes to see a difficult equity market, but if that's representative of the tightening financial conditions, I think it's a very healthy way of resetting expectations and and being able to hopefully set us on a course for price stability on a go-forward basis like we've had over the past decade and moderate trend growth, right? And so, yes, I tend to agree with you, but with the second derivative still kind of against us, I'm going to remain vigilant on this topic. <laughs> All right. Last question I'm going to ask you on the Fed. We have another FOMC meeting come up in June, 75 basis points. Is that on the table? Is it in the cards? Well, I'd like to see it be in the cards, and I would like to see the Fed rhetoric get to the point where the market starts to price in that expectation. The last thing I want is for the Fed to come out with something that jars the markets that was unexpected. But the sooner we get to that neutral rate or slightly above that neutral rate, the happier I'll be. Again, because I just do not want to see inflation expectations unanchored. But no, right now, I do not see that on the as a possibility. I think that they've been pretty consistent in their message that 50 basis points in, in June and July is how they're going to do it. But personally, I would like to see their rhetoric get a little more hawkish and change market pricing expectations. So my subjective betting odds on a 75 basis point rate hike is one, one to three. <laughs> not low payoff, but uh, not a high probability of it not going that direction. And if you look at market pricing right now, forward Fed fund futures are pricing in a June hike of 52 basis points. So they seem to, to think 50s up until we get to September. And we're running short on time to change that expectation. And, and certainly the way financial conditions and the equity markets are behaving would suggest that the Fed would be in a pickle if they tried to kind of change that narrative to 75 basis points. I think that would create greater worry as opposed to a, a greater optimism that they're on top of inflation. I think it would create a greater worry that they're further behind the curve than we realize. And I know I said it was the last question on the Fed. I lied about that. One last question I want to talk about, because I think that this is a question that are, is a concern and a top concern for a lot of people. Simultaneously doing this double-barreling tightening, quantitative tightening, raising the short end of the curve. I mean, is, is this going to be too much for the economy to bear? It's, it's not like it's the first time we've seen this. I mean, we saw this in 2017 to 2019. They eventually ran into the point at where reserves were, the, the minimal level of reserves, and you saw overnight uh, rates spike pretty dramatically, and they quelled that. They gave liquidity to the, the system. But do you see this being an issue? I, I personally don't, but not, not now. It will be an issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, we did it in 27 through 2019, but I think we were all, you know, worried that a recession was forming as we exited 2019, right? And so 
I, I do think withdrawing liquidity from the system creates a whole host of problems that none of us have really lived through, especially at the magnitude that the Fed is about to embark on. I do think it makes it more difficult for risk assets, too, in the near term. But whether or not that actually has a, a massively deleterious impact on aggregate demand remains to be seen. I, I would argue, no, it, that we can still engineer a soft landing, even with the liquidity being drained from the system, although that may result in lower P multiples and valuation multiples for risk assets, perhaps less venture capital money, less capital formation for new businesses. But I still think that the economy can work through that, though it may not be the best environment for those types of risky assets. Well, you mentioned lower multiples. I mean, multiples have moved down dramatically. Coming into the year, forward multiple on the S&P 500 was 21.4. We're at 16.9 today. I mean, that's a pretty big drop. We're back down close to that long-term average. A lot of negativity priced into the markets with the Fed now just starting to embark embark on their tightening cycle. Yeah, again, second derivative seems to be another theme of this conversation. And and so I'm always a bigger fan of investing in risk assets as as the Fed is flattening their rhetoric or actually suggesting that liquidity could be provided from the system. So I do like to see the market multiple revert back to its mean, but I would also like to see a Fed that feels comfortable with where inflation sits and where their policy stands. That would make me feel a lot better about taking on a little more risk in the equity market. And so to the extent that they're able to accomplish their goals and engineer that soft landing, I don't know that we're too far away from that. Call it six, 12 months, maybe 12 months from now, we're talking about hey, we're at the neutral rate, everything seems fine, we don't need to be any more restrictive, and then we have a pretty good sense of what the the balance sheet shrinking is doing to impact the economy. And so, you know, if all goes well, we'll have a lot of visibility on this stuff by the end of our calendar year. Well, I I think I agree with you. I think the next four to six months are going to be pretty volatile. It's going to be a choppy kind of sideways market as we go through the meat of this tightening cycle, get to neutral. And that's consistent with, you know, the work that we did. If you look at the two-year period or rally following the pandemic's low, Believe it or not, that was the strongest two-year rally that the S&P 500 has seen since 1950, right? So we're in rare air here as far as market returns are concerned. And we looked at the top 5% of all two-year rallies over the same 72 period. And when you get into year three, for the first six months, not surprisingly, the markets have a tough time moving forward. They got to digest those gains. The average return was 2.1%. But after you get through that digestion period, the back half of the year, the markets resume its upward trajectory and return 6%. So given the fact that this is the strongest two-year rally in modern history, I'm going to argue that that digestion period is probably going to be a little bit longer than what you see on average. But I guess the good news from where we sit today, we're four and a half months into that digestion period. But I think we probably have to go another, call it six months, maybe to the fourth quarter of this year before the markets get comfortable that the Fed isn't going to cause a recession. They're going to back off. We potentially get that pivot before sowing the seeds for a really strong rally into the later innings of this market cycle. It's funny. Uh, we did the same analysis on a rolling three-year basis. And I think at the end of 2021, that on a rolling three-year basis, S&P 500's returns were in the 95th percentile of all returns over the past 100 years. So some normalization of return expectations was warranted. Some resetting evaluation was certainly necessary. Digestion periods are a part of the market. Drawdowns tend to be healthy in terms of reinvigorating economic cycles. And so I feel the same way as you do. We're still in the teeth of this. We probably still have you know, the better part of four months to kind of get over the second, these second derivative headwinds that we talked about. But I'm optimistic that if we come out the other end, we'll have a stronger, sustainable economy. Yeah. In, in midterm election years, believe it or not, since 1962, average drawdown is 19%. That's kind of where we stand today with the S&P 500. But if you bought at the lows, your forward year, one-year return was 32%. So this may be another opportunity to, to reposition as this cycle continues and we, we continue to move forward. I mean, that's a great point. We, we invest for the long term, right? And so 
although we think that there may be a four-month period where things are choppy, we don't know this for certain. And so being prudently invested, being risk-averse investors with focus on risk-reward and cash flow, we think this is a great environment for active managers to be able to outperform in a difficult market, but yet position yourself for capital appreciation in the years to come. And so we say four months, it could be two months, it could be six months, but if you're focused on the next five and 10 years, being prudently positioned with companies that we think can compound returns over time is ultimately going to pay off for investors who have a longer duration time horizon. Volatility is part of the game. Exactly. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Steve, I feel like I could talk to you here live for another two hours on on these topics. We could have one more question on the Fed a hundred times, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we could. Thanks for for sharing your perspective and and how you're seeing things in this unique environment. And obviously, when you have choppy markets like this, it's really important to level set expectations, but also, as you mentioned, kind of keep that longer term perspective. So thank you, Steve, for, for joining me here today. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everybody, for listening to our podcast. As we mentioned, we may not be out of the woods quite yet from a volatility perspective, but we do believe that as we get to the later part of this year, this could set up a very nice opportunity to reposition as we get into the later innings of this market cycle. So with that, I wish you all a safe and healthy spring, and I hope you'll be able to join us in June for the next ClearBridge podcast. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future